This very special Clothes and Emotions edition of Roderick on the Line is brought to you exclusively by Need. Need is a curated retailer and lifestyle publication for men. To learn more about Need's just-released Volume 2.7 collection, please visit neededition.com. Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Berlid. <laughs> How's it going? Good, although I just looked down and noticed that I have a schmutz on my pants. Oh, no way. Yeah, I got all the way down here, sat down, feeling good, feeling strong, and then schmutz on the pants. Oh, cry me, Pete. What you know, mm. you know, you, you, so you're at your, uh, you're at your uh, office uh, mm-hmm. studio mm-hmm. HQ now? Mm-hmm. You should probably get, this happens to lots of like rich, famous guys, you should mm. get a rack of clothes that you can have around. You know, maybe, I don't know if you have a closet there, but I'm thinking you need to start having a couple shirts a day and maybe some schmuss-free pants at the office. I do, you know, I, I don't have a closet, but I do have clothes here left over from the time period when I imagined that I would start a, like a thriving um, eBay company mm-hmm, where uh, the, the, the thing that the eBay company sold was my old clothes. So I have a bunch of stuff. I have. I am looking right now at, at uh, I think a tangerine colored linen sport coat, and a pair of heavy wool hunting pants that it would have to be twenty below zero, and you would have to be spending a night outside to wear. Uh, that's what. That's what my eye. Oh no, there's a corduroy vest. Mm. So, so <laughs> I corduroy could, vest. I could dress myself. I could wear a uh, John Roderick for City Council T-shirt, uh, the hunting pants. It's just that you'd, you'd look like Ignatius Riley. <laughs> exactly like Ignatius Riley. Oh my valve! Oh my pyloric valve! Oh, oh. oh uh, so man. anyway, that's where I'm at. I mean, I can't talk about like talk about like needing to be ironed. Mm. I, I, I need to be ironed and spot pressed mm. and, and spot dabbed. You know, the thing is. You know, you've kind of this eBay thing has been a presence in your life on and off, it sounds like for the last few years. Like it's always it comes in, it goes out. Like you think about like finding things on eBay, you think about putting things on eBay. I'm still very interested in an idea from a few years ago about you curating some kind of museum of your life. Mm-hmm. But like it's amazing because like you go to the store and you see all those t- tiny little clothes that won't fit you. Mm-hmm. It's like somewhere out there. I don't want to say it's a doppelganger, but it would be great if you could find like a few guys. <laughs> Let's call them bears. Let's if you could find a few guys like you that have your interests, where you could like do things like swap clothes. Because part of it is that you're you're a tall guy, like you're a big fella. Yeah, you know. Yeah. If you were if you were like if you know if you were like like a like a little guy, uh, you could you could probably swap clothes with more other guys. But like you need to find there should be some kind of a matching service for people based on interest and you know uh, what's the word I'm looking for. You know, mm, yeah, shape, shape. Yeah, shape, right. I, I mean, I think that there are enough, just based on the touring that I've done and the traveling and the number of people that come up at, up to me in airports and uh, other places and say, Mr. Roderick, <laughs> uh, I am guessing that uh, there are a large number of my uh, people who are interested in the things that I make who also are my size and shape. Mm-hmm. And I that and so the interest in having the eBay store was mostly to just take these clothes and deliver them to a group that was standing there with a big catcher's mitt mm-hmm. already, just waiting for the used hunting pants, thinking to themselves, "I want used hunting pants and can't find them anywhere." 
and John Roderick has some, and he's my size, and we share a, a, a an aesthetic. You know what? It's not bespoke; it's me spoke. Mm. I think that's that's your that's your eBay store. Me spoke. Me well, spoke. That's nice. Me spoke. It's sort of like it's like a dating service, but for uh, shape based pairings uh, uh, based on interest. Well, but you know, there's there's something there's something to this that. Uh, that gets at the heart of something else, as all things on our program do, mm-hmm. uh, where you know your natural inclination when you think about like I would like to curate a store of my former belongings is to your inclination is to look at that desire or that impulse and say that is narcissistic, you know, to 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 reduce it to its basis. Like you are an egotist. I'm talking now to the imaginary me. You are an mm-hmm. egotist, and this is narcissism in in its in. in in its uh, like most reduced form, you actually want to take your things and put them up on the internet as though they are valuable. Um, but you know, the desire to like curate your, the desire to have a curated life is one thing, but the desire to have a curated history of your, of your life and of yourself is a different impulse. And I, and, and I tangle with it all the time, you know, like for uh-huh. years, I I was so I was so pleased when I found my father's clothes from the 60s and 50s. And I found them in the 80s. A long time after my dad had stopped being interested in them, he couldn't wear them anymore and they, you know, and he was not like a trendy guy, but but they were dated suits, you know. And um and I found these things, and they, the only reason they were there, and the only reason that they, and, and I mean, and they were, the, they were the sourdough starter mix of my whole fashion sense. My dad's 50s suits hanging in his closet. And so my whole life, I've imagined that, because I, because I had that experience, I was aware of it, and I was saving things in order that my future child son or daughter would discover this this uh starter kit again this sourdough and that it would be useful to them mm-hmm. but i don't know how much me discovering that you know how much of it how much of the fact that my dad just absently left that stuff around because he never got around to throwing it away how much of that but 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 i mean i was aware of my dad's history i put on those clothes conscious of the fact that these were the suits he wore during the Kennedy administration. I mean, oh, totally, I, totally. I wasn't blind to that, but he didn't keep them for me. He just kept them because. Yeah. And so I've been keeping stuff my whole life thinking that one day I would seed, you know, it would, it would regenerate that, that excitement and that like putting on your dad's clothes, you know, like the spoon song, your dad's fitted shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so it's it's there's gosh this is really got me thinking there's so many different levels to this I mean you know the the anecdote I have to share is you know my dad died when I was really young and mm -hmm. I discovered over time like little caches of his clothes and uh, he was a little taller than me and a little skinnier than me but uh, I mean I still have a jacket of his from the early 70s that I wear 
mm. increasingly less because I, I do want to keep it. But like you're you're onto something so super interesting. And I don't want I don't mean to make this all intellectual because there's something very emotional to what you're describing. But like when you first I made the crack of haha, like you know what are you gonna do like some Miranda July kind of project where you open a shop and it's all your own, own clothes and it'd be like a cute little like Portlandia sketch. <laughs> but like that's the thing is though there's there's such a distinction between like how you would choose to frame that to the public, like the way you would frame that to the public. And I, I'm I'm taking this kind of seriously because yeah. what is art anyway? <laughs> you know, art in a lot of ways, it has to be kind of narcissistic. It has to be, I saw a funny Venn diagram on Tumblr the other day where somebody was saying like, you know, the nexus of total narcissism and, and complete self-doubt is where you find art. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's, and it's kind of true. Yes. But like, there's one way of saying like, okay, here's all these objects from my life that I'm putting a frame around in order to highlight how pointless and ephemeral they are. And there's another way of saying, well, I'm putting a kind of frame around it to show like how important it was or how emblematic it was, how this is this strange connective tissue between generations that like, you know, in the same way you, you it's, it's considered very normal to say like, Oh, you know, I love the Beatles because my parents love the Beatles. It's another kind of thing to go like, who knows what kind of sensibilities I develop based on wearing this suit, you know, and how much like I, I, you know, you know, it's just, and there's the whole aspect of like a little kid, like you never know what your little kid wants a question answered about. Yeah. And like finding like a cigar box full of old stuff is like so many answers to questions you didn't know existed. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and, and like there are lots of people who would be interested in seeing the original handwritten lyrics to Scared Straight, right? I mean, and there are a lot of fans that like that song. When, it be, when they become aware that there is a paper that has the original handwritten lyrics to that song that I was scribbling out as I was writing it in the studio, there are, there are plenty of people that, that go, oh, I would be interested in seeing that. And then there's a much smaller group of people that would say, I would be interested in owning that, mm -hmm. right? I mean, when you think about the original handwritten lyrics to Like a Rolling Stone, there are millions of people who would be interested in seeing it and probably, you know, many tens of thousands who would bid on it if it came up for auction. Quite a, you know, it's a much smaller group of people that care about Scared Straight. But for me, the, the handwritten lyrics of Like a Rolling Stone are interesting to look at. But I would be much more interested in the shirt that Dylan was wearing when he wrote it. Mm -hmm. And Dylan probably doesn't remember the shirt he was wearing and doesn't ever didn't think that way. And he's, he's so like, not peculiarly, but so uniquely wired to find something like that, like kind of repulsive. Yeah. You right. know, you remember AJ Weberman, the guy that used to go through his trash and write about it. Like he's, he's, but Bob Dylan in particular is, is particularly wired to go like, I'm not even sure why you care about this song, let alone my shirt, but yeah, whatever. Exactly. He would, he would burn it all, or at least he would burn it as theater. Just, just so you can't have it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, and, and the thing, and, and the big question of Dylanologists is like, yes, he, uh, yes, he finds it repulsive, but also that is his persona, you know, like he's enacting finding that repulsive too at the same time. Okay. But, Maybe. Yeah. No. No. I think you're. I think you're right. I mean, God, it's the criminology around that guy is just yeah, right. nauseating. I mean, when, you, when you think about when you think about him, Dylan constructing his personality out of Lego blocks, and at which you know at which point he grabbed the block that was like, uh, kill your idols, and and set it there as one of the foundational ones. You know, who knows? Mm -hmm. But um, but there's something about me that I remember pretty much. Like, I know the shirt I was wearing. And 
there's maybe only a handful of people that are interested in that connection. Like, that's the shirt that I was wearing at that point, and I got that shirt from my dad, and that's the shirt I was wearing when I, when I wrote Scared Straight, and that through line is, you know, maybe will never be interesting to my kids or my grandkids, but it is interesting to somebody, and that connection is interesting to me, and I don't know, I, and I can't separate out like I think I've got it. I think I've got it. And this is this is the ineffable part. And like we, you know, we we joke forever about the dumb stuff we say for our kids that they won't want. Because again, it's the, the the part that's so interesting is like you know what you care about, mm-hmm. and you know what you found interesting. But you know that's what you found interesting about that particular person. Or you know, obviously the clothes have become like kind of a touchstone for you. But I guess what I'm saying is like there's no way to know what your kid's going to care about. Right. That you know the idea of saving a shirt for somebody is pretty weird. Like to to anybody who's not into it in the same way as you. Do you know what I mean? And it's yeah. the, uh, like, but but there's still this part of me that's like, it, this is this is not narcissistic, but there's a part that goes like, I know that if I try to save everything, I'm going to be a garbage man. <laughs> I'm not going to be a curator. I'm not going to be a collector. I'm gonna I'm gonna be a kind of emotionally damaged hoarder. Like, I don't know what special things to keep. But the idea of this particular thing going into the trash, because you know, any other normal person would look at 15 items in a room. It's like the end of uh, Indiana Jones and the and the you know, the third Indiana Jones movie, we got to pick out the right Holy Grail, uh-huh. you know, the right, which oh, one right. of these is the real right. Grail? Yeah, it's which like, cup with the carpenter? Nobody, no, yeah, exactly. That's the car- carpenter's cup. That's such a great line. Um, but, you know, nobody could look at all of these shirts and go, oh, obviously this is the important one. You know what I mean? It is completely in, intrinsic in some ways. There's nothing extrinsic where somebody could go, well, that's the nicest one. That's the one in the best condition, right? right? It's, <laughs> that Grail thing is going to really weigh on me now because it's like <laughs> of all of these dumb you know, hardback books, like who's to know which one of these is the one that made a huge difference. They're all just a big pile of paper. How's, how's anybody going to care about that the same way that I did? But you know, so how do you make those decisions? It's hard to know what to keep on that rack. It's hard to know. First of all, I'm not sure who would ever want a corduroy vest in your size, but I guess you did at some point. Can you pull off a vest? (coughs) This episode of Roderick on the line is brought to you by need. Need is a curated retailer and lifestyle publication for men. Each month, Need curates and sells a limited selection of products, clothing, literature, furniture, and otherwise, for the discerning gentleman. Rather than offering an overwhelming amount of selection, Need only sells 10 to 15 exclusive products per month, while also offering an ongoing array of essentials. Need just launched its latest collection, Volume 2.7, featuring clothing and accessories ideally suited for the summer months. There are no subscriptions, services, boxes, stylus, or other such gimmicks. Instead, you just come to Need once a month, see if there's anything that you like, and choose to buy, leave, or just hang out to read some of the wonderful feature articles. For Roderick on the Line listeners, Need are offering 20% off anything on the site, including their brand new collection and Father's Day gift guide. Just use the entirely appropriate and bespoke offer code CLOTHES at checkout. Visit neededition.com. And redeem the code during the last stage of checkout. And as always, please do feel free to say hello to our friend Matt Alexander via the live chat. Our thanks to Need for making the world so much more handsome and for supporting Roderick on the Line. Bloing! Bloing! (laughs) Okay, the internet just went away, uh, and now we're back. I don't know how long we were both each just talking there. Um, Uh, I'm pretty sure I'd like to thank Comcast for all their support. (laughs) 
I'm pretty sure that I was talking for a full minute and a half. I was talking for at least two minutes. Yeah, and then I was like, Merlin, are, you haven't said any, you haven't grunted, and nothing. I was afraid the last the last phrase out of my mouth was, "Can you pull off a vest?" Can you pull off a vest? And then there was silence, and I couldn't reconnect, and I thought I offended you. <laughs> you know, it's a good question. I have I have several vests, but I I have never I don't. I can't think of a time I ever walked out of the house wearing only a vest. It's, you know, it seems like it's kind of up there with the cowboy hat and the leather pants mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the like, wow, you know, good. If you can do it, good on you. Yeah, right. That's but, right. You have to be, a, I think you have to be a thin guy. I think all of those things, it helps if you're a lanky cowboy type. Yeah. If you're wearing, if you're a heavyset guy, then your vest is, I think, properly a waistcoat. <laughs> but you know, what I was talking about that whole time was uh, that I have, Sitting on a shelf in my living room, I have a broken speedometer. A broken speedometer from an automobile? A broken speedometer from the motorcycle that I crashed in a Kansas field in 1986. And I was so devastated because this motorcycle represented basically my only asset in the world. It was a. It was only a five hundred dollar motorcycle, a uh, Honda, a nineteen eighty one Honda CB six fifty, and I wrecked it in this field, and it was a total wreck. But I had it. I had a friend come put it in the back of his pickup truck and drive it to Denver, and I took it to a place called Denver Used Motorcycle Parts, or Dump. And I was like, "You got to give me some money for this bike. It's the only thing I own in the world. I don't have anything else." And the guy was like, "It's an eighty one Honda. It's not worth any money." I was like, come on, something, anything. And the guy was like, 20 bucks. And I was like, real. this was the first time in my life I had ever, well, obviously the first time I'd ever crashed a motorcycle in a Kansas field. And I didn't know how to deal with it. Every, every boy has his first time. Yeah. And so the guy wrenches off the, the broken speedometer, which is broken and still stuck at 80 miles. And, you know, the, it's like broken, like, like cracked. And he goes, here's a souvenir. <laughs> and I still have it. Still, is it still stuck at 80 miles per hour? It's still stuck at 80 miles an hour. And, I, <laughs> and, you know, and it's like, what good is that to anybody? You know, what, what possible good is that? Well, okay, but this, okay, so picking up on the thread, you know, goddamn Comcast. That was, yeah. so, we, were, we were really getting oh, somewhere with that. Comcast. Is it like, I think there's lots of little things I feel like you can tease out, little distinctions that to me are very important. I mean, there's the things that we save and we know why and we know it's for ourselves and that's okay. And there's the things we save and we're not really even sure why and we think it might be for us. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think I think there's all kinds of different levels to this. There's some stuff people save think about the classic sort of medals and trophies kind of thing right. where it's about like you save that because you want to be able to show to people that you got a, you know, you got um, wounded in World War II or, or right. what have you. Somebody so, handed me a Facebook challenge coin the other day. They stuck out their hand, and I was like, oh, hi, uh, nice to meet you. And he was like, Mr. Roderick. And I shake his hand, and then I feel this thing between us, and I'm like, oh, God, what the fuck? And then I'm like, oh, it's a challenge coin. And I'm looking at the guy, and I'm trying to think, what challenge coin could this guy possibly be handing me? It's going to be amazing, whatever it is, and it's a Facebook challenge coin. No, it's and tracking, he, tracking your movement. And he, he had a look on his face that was just Cheshire Cat, you know, like, you're going to like this. Oh, boy. Facebook challenge coin. Um, 
and so the thing that I, that I've, anyway, the thing I found interesting about what we were getting at is this, you know, are, are, are those distinctions? Like, why am I saving this? Am mm. I saving this for me to remember? Am I saving it for someone else to remember? Am I saving this because I think it's going to be useful in a way that I understand? Could this be useful in a way that I don't understand? You know, because I think there's a continuum here or a spectrum, if you like. Mm-hmm. We're on the one end, like if the only, if, you know, it, it, the, like, you know, I don't want to be morose, but like, you know, a, a deceased child's blanket, like that might be something that you would want to keep. Like you get that. But over here, you're like, you know, I can't keep all of the blankets I've ever had. Right. Well, and I'm, like, there's like, there's, there is a continuum, like there's this emotional continuum the, between like, you know, somebody who's incredibly emotionally healthy and, and has a, understands why they're doing this down to all the other end where you're like, you're, you know, it's like hoarding. Yeah, I don't feel it is a sign. I do not feel that my keeping things is a sign of emotional health. Let's be quite frank about that, right? I think that. But can you say that across the board? Aren't there some things where it totally makes sense? Don't you imagine that uh, that the most emotionally healthy dude right now is sitting somewhere in Big Sur, and all he has in his uh, the only thing he has on is a vest. <laughs> And and some board shorts and his, and his minimalist desk and he's just like whatever man what don't like hang right. on to stuff man and then you know and then I'm sitting here you know in my in my hunting pants with a broken <laughs> speedometer from an '81 Honda I think he sounds healthier than me I'm not sure uh, yeah I, I you know I guess so or some people are more um, emotionally raw or emotionally available or unavailable than others but I mean I I, I see it you know um, in, like in my family like my wife is way I, I don't even think of myself as being that into like the objects that I save I'm not like I could just have whole boxes of stuff flood and like I, I just I, I would be okay I would go oh that's a bummer yeah. but like I wouldn't I, I, I also maybe that's partly because I, I know that I'm raw enough that if I really thought about it I'd be sad forever but I remember one day <laughs> one day I was about to take out the trash in the kitchen and I looked in the trash and I just have to tell you my wife is she loves throwing things away even yeah. you know like I'm a purge guy sometimes I really want to purge my wife just like day to day she loves throwing things away or recycling but you know getting useless things out of her life mm-hmm. and I look in there and there's a pair of shoes in there. And I was like, and my heart sank. And I, I, I picked up this, this old, gross pair of her shoes and held them up in the air. And I was like, what are you doing? She said, those, those are disgusting. I haven't worn them in years. I said, these are the shoes you were wearing when I met you. Yeah. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> she, <laughs> I might as well have said, like, this is the turd I made the morning after we met. Yeah. Why, not, why not throw away your wedding dress? <laughs> You bitch. <laughs> but like they were exactly what she they were like old shoes she did not want to wear anymore. They were out of fashion. They were they were dirty old gross shoes and she threw them away. But like my my first reaction, of course, because you know, I'm so good at instantly making it about me, even when it comes to garbage. Yeah. <laughs> but it's funny though, because like sometimes my daughter and I will go like to get our scooters, uh, you know, and we'll notice we'll walk by the trash and we'll go like <laughs> We'll both like discover things in the trash and be like, "Hey, hey. You, you threw away this popsicle stick," <laughs> and then she'll go, "She threw away my popsicle stick too." <laughs> well, now let me ask you: Were you? Were you? I, I know there's a there's a term for this or a word for it. Even I'm not sure what it is, but like I when I was a kid, if if I took a bana- a banana off a bunch of bananas, there was a part of me that felt sorry for the the other bananas. Mm-hmm. Because I had chosen the one banana, and I felt, I, I felt like I was 
I had to comfort the remaining bananas that it wasn't about them. It was just that I picked this one banana. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I, fe- I feel so much emotion and always have from the time I was a little kid about inanimate objects. Oh my and, God, yes. And, you know, reduced to tears, feeling sorry for a, a chair with a broken leg or, I mean, I remember I, I used to have a, f- a flag that, uh, like one of those orange safety flags uh, that they they attached to the back of my bike um, so you could see me around corners. Or yeah, yeah, so that cars. was like a big pennant. A big pennant, right, a big orange pennant on, uh, on, a, on a little uh, or a flexible pole on the back of my bike. And somehow I, I, I crashed the bike and, it, and my pennant ripped. Oh. And I was inconsolable. Uh, not because, like, because the pennant was less useful, or because you know, but but because I because I felt sorry for the pennant, and I've carried that into adulthood in a way that you know I don't now apologize to things that I use. I don't feel like broken things. I don't cry for broken things the same way. But but objects do have, um, like they have an emotional valence. They do, yes, and and it's and it's very hard for me to, you know, in a way, like throw things away that have that have served me well, I guess, because mm-hmm. I want to honor their service. <laughs> I, I hate to admit it, but um, I'm not nearly as much that way as I used to be. But I was so that way, and I I think it's because I am and always have been a little broken inside, <laughs> and so I mean, like, the, like but here's the thing: where, again, back to the continuum. I don't think there's that many examples of this. You can come up with examples of this that almost anybody, you know, crying that your wife threw out an old pair of shoes, not crying, but like going like, hey, yeah, like, that's pretty weird. Did, the so wait, is, did though, the shoes end up in the garbage? Or oh yeah, totally. You, yeah, oh, I yeah. yeah. I mean, what do you? <laughs> How many how many pairs of shoes will we save? This becomes a question. Like yeah. what and how do we honor them? <laughs> how do we honor the shoes she doesn't want? It's weird. Yeah. But um no, but like for example, like there's all the obvious kinds of things. Like, you know, I I, I used to have a, a lot of attachment to stuffed animals or at plushes as they're now called. My kid loves them now. I think she got it for I love my stuffed animals when I was a kid. To to until I was like pretty old. And like so stuff like seeing a stuffed animal on the street still makes me melancholy. Uh-huh. I think that's a pretty clear one, uh-huh. right? No matter how much no matter how many pork chops you jam in your mouth hole every month, watching the first few minutes of Babe will make, will tug on your heartstrings and you go, "Oh my god, I'm totally eating a pig." There's all kinds of things where like things you generally think of as an inert object you suddenly can feel very emotional about for all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. And you know, and uh, but maybe you're right. Maybe it maybe it does come down to be a little being a little bit, you know, broken inside in, in some ways. Yeah, but, but I, I, I used to I used to feel really bad for I I feel positive we've had this conversation before. But I used to feel bad. I used to have feel bad for my clothes. I used to like feel like if I didn't wear them often enough or like, you know, I didn't want my socks to be separated and I didn't I didn't want to, I didn't want my shirts to get their feelings hurt. I had uh-huh. felt that very strongly. Absolutely. And 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 there is something I I got a valentine one time in about 3rd grade. And the, the Valentine, I may have talked about this a long time ago with you, but the Valentine was of a little girl and she was crying and she was holding a flower. And she'd obviously been playing the uh, he loves me, he loves me not game, mm-hmm. pl- uh, plucking the petals off the flower. And she had plucked the petals down to the last petal 
there was one petal remaining on her flower. And it was clear from the narrative, the, the, the unwritten narrative of the Valentine, that she had arrived at the last petal, that the petal was he loves me not, Oof. and she could not pluck it, and was crying, holding the flower, imagining, uh, imagining that she could go back in time, imagining another world, an alternate reality, where the last petal was that he loves me. And the, the Valentine was this little cartoon of a girl crying, and, and it said, um, I will be so lonely if you aren't my Valentine or something like that. And all, all of this was – it wasn't explicit. It was just in the drawing. And as a third grader, I could – I understood the story that, it was, that was being told. And this Valentine destroyed me. And I, and, and I, I openly cried. At receiving, and I don't remember who it was from. Oh my god! But I, it was just you know, it was one of those things like everybody in the class has to give everybody a Valentine mm-hmm. situations. But here, this thing popped up in That's a, a piece in of a, paper somebody bought at a store. Yeah, it <laughs> popped up in a stack of Valentines, and the the it was so fraught, and 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 I felt so acutely for this little cartoon girl that she had started off probably plucking these petals full of excitement and hope and fun. Like he loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. And then she, and then it started to get darker as she was running out of petals. Oh no. She got down to that last petal and she couldn't pluck it. And I wanted, I wanted to do anything in the world to change this girl's life, to change the story, to change the reality, to put an extra petal on that fucking flower. And I, I would sit, so I kept this Valentine and I tucked it away and I would take it out sometimes and look at it like it was pornography mm-hmm. because it, it could put me in this place of like emotional, just absolute rawness. It never, that didn't diminish over time. It no, still had it, that power. And I would, I would draw it sometimes. I would sit and, and, and either trace it or actually do drawings of it on a separate piece of paper. I guess trying to unlock it, trying to unlock the story or, or change it in some way. And uh, I, I, so I think that I still have the Valentine. I think I may even still have some of the drawings I did of the Valentine. Oh God. And I don't – and still sitting and thinking about it right now, I can, I can picture everything about it. Mm-hmm. And I am – and I still feel for that little girl. Ah. And what's what's crazy is that I've I've only just started exposing my daughter to to media that is complicated, right? Up until now, it's you know all of her books and all of the stuff that she's been exposed to is pretty much on the <laughs> un- level un- of unambiguous like, kid stuff. Yeah, it's just like little Apple Boy puts the letter A on his apple basket, but he eats his good supper. <laughs> That's right. Little Apple Boy never complains about going to bed. Bunny's so big. (laughs) But I've started, you know, I've started introducing her to, you know, we watched Dumbo. Oh, God. And I had forgotten. (laughs) I I was like, Dumbo, the flying elephant. Oh, my God. And we sat down and and started watching (gasps) Dumbo. And I'm like, Dumbo, he's a a funny funny elephant. Funny elephant. He just needs self-confidence. Yeah, with the flappy ears. He's got the flower. And, and then Dumbo, the trunk, the trunk comes out. <laughs> oh, you know, Dumbo is like, it's like basically, um, uh, it is full of. I mean, it, it's, it's, um, it's basically the the uh, the story of Precious, the 
the, the whatever that movie was from a couple of years ago. Oh with yeah, the with, really the, long with the title. name with the name of the person in it. Yeah, um, based on Sapphire or something. Yeah, that, that's right. It's it's you know like Dumbo is born. Uh, everyone rejects him because of his birth defect, and his mother, in trying to defend him, is uh, is taken away by the authorities and put in an insane insane asylum. <laughs> Dumbo is rejected by the tribe, and his only friend is a wisecracking mouse. He's surrounded by evil clowns. <laughs> he is he's forced into you know essentially like uh, he's forced into being a like a, a freak a in freak. a sideshow. Yeah, right. A professional and, freak. And uh, only in the only in the last minute of the film is there any redemption, and it is when he discovers he can fly. Oh, oh, oh! oh and then there's you know then there are the like the uh, the tribe of uh, racist uh, crows, or you know the crows themselves aren't racist, but their portrayal is racist. Yeah, and um, and so I'm watching this movie, and she is just she's like yelling at the screen, like no, oh, you no. can't take. You can't take Dumbo's mom. What are you? Ah! And she's just like so. Her emotional uh, response to this stuff is like so intense. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I do I right, right? Do I turn this off? Because you don't want to. You don't. I mean, the thing is, though, you, every kid sits with that, and they turn out mostly okay. Mm-hmm. But like, you you just hate seeing your kid. Like now, you're sitting there. You 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 put your child in this situation. Yeah, yeah. I you exposed her to there. this monstrosity. I this- mentioned I mentioned Babe. We made it about three minutes into Babe, and then she started sitting upright. And I, I know what that means. When she yeah, was right. little, she would always say, "This is boring." Right. This is this is boring. That means like this is horrifying me. Please take it off. <laughs> and she started to kind of look down a little bit, and I could tell we were about thirty seconds from tears. And I was like, "What am I doing? Yeah. What have I done?" And so she really she feels it too, huh? She feels stuff super hard. And the thing is, I was talking to my mom about it, and, and Dumbo came out in nineteen forty one. Yeah, it's for early forties, I think. Forty, forty one. Uh, and my mom was six years old in nineteen forty, six or seven years old. And right. She was like, "Oh, I remember going to see Dumbo." In the theater when it came out. Wow. And I was like, wow, how did you feel about it? And she said, oh, I mean, it was, you know, kids movie like all those movies. And as I started to unpack it, I realized that the experiences that Dumbo was having in comparison to the experiences my mom was actually having in, in her own real life, right. Dumbo was some lighthearted shit to her, right? You know, like, like. My mom was actually, you know, was was actually an orphan laboring uh, on a farm. Right. And Dumbo was, you know, at least not had, like a, not like a fun farm. Like not it was, a fun it was, farm. It's no, more no. like when, when you say farm, people are going to go do 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 like turkey in the straw kind of thing. And it's like no, really, more, more like think coal miners, but yeah. with land. Right, a farm where you where there was an outhouse and where grinding poverty. The, the way you dried your clothes in winter was that you hung them up outside, they froze, and then you beat them with a rod until the ice broke off of them, and that was how that and then took them inside and ironed them dry. Um, so my mom was like, "Oh, I don't, you know, Dumbo shrugged it off," and I was like, "Oh my god!" Uh, so of course I didn't turn it off, and I, you know, and I held my little girl and said, you know, like, and talked to her about it. You know, I didn't like say, it's okay. It's okay. I, I said, yeah, Dumbo's mom is really in trouble. She was trying to help him. Wasn't she? And, you know, and we walk, we talked our way through the movie 
And I was like, oh, Jesus, that was emotionally fraught for me. Oh, yeah. I think it would have been if I had just watched it by myself, realizing like how, what a terrible time Dumbo had. And I'm not sure when I watched it in 1972 whether – I mean it was – Dumbo had a worse time than I did, but, you know, Well, to me, Dumbo, Dumbo and Bambi are like on – are near the top of the list of like – they're canonical. I mean, in terms of like Disney hates parents and consequently kind of hates kids. Like we are going to make you feel so low. And and here's the thing with these Disney movies. This is the thing to keep in mind is, you know, like you're talking about like, you know, people of a certain generation think, oh, Disney movies, they're like these these fun things. And there's lots of wackadoodle animals singing songs and stuff like that. <laughs> I've been thinking about this a lot lately is the what is it that really sticks with you about a movie? And the thing is, some people might really they might remember like Mary Poppins for let's go fly a kite uh-huh. i remember it for the woman feeding the birds oh yeah and it's, well, it's incredible very scary. it's so depressing and like in like in, in these cases these movies we're talking about like it may have robin hood and like putting children in jail it's like how do you explain to a little kid why these children are in jail well the, red. yeah and this the prince is corrupt and he's a lion man and it's like <laughs> but what you really remember like there are these just stu- the, the i think the impact that sticks with at least me and a lot of people i know was the incredibly intensely sad stuff and then in fact when you want to have this kind of tacked on happy ending it kind of makes it worse because you're like, ooh, like there's this thing I don't understand. I'm kind of pushing this bruise now about how sad this made me. And all this, all this uh, kind of, you know, uh, baggy pants humor at the end is not making me feel better. It feels, it feels really false. It feels really fake. And the, and the emotional impact you're trying to create is like, everything turns out great. The parents are back. Yay. Or whatever. It's like, it's so, it doesn't, not only doesn't offset how sad you were at the end of the first or second act. But like how it make it kind of, you know what I'm saying? It kind of makes it worse that like you're trying to like make me happy now when I know the profundity of that sadness that I felt is so much more important than seeing the end, a Technicolor production or whatever. Yeah, the, the, the end of Dumbo, I'm not sure I ever, I mean, I haven't watched it. I cannot tell you how Dumbo ends. I do not remember. <laughs> well, he, I mean, that, that's he the flies. thing. <laughs> he, he flies and then he's the star. And the last scene of the movie is that Dumbo has his own Super cool Art Deco styled train car that tacked onto the end of the train. It's very modern. And there's a balcony where his mother is sitting watching him fly uh, high above the train. I think maybe the crows are there and they're all friends. Mm. And But the thing is, like watching it now, I did very much have the experience of thinking – Dumbo's mother is never going to live that down. She's no. never going to feel safe again. Uh, never again. I mean, if Terry Gilliam made an honest version of that, it would all turn out to have been a, a dream while Dumbo was being tortured and was like dehydrated. <laughs> and he's imagining it would be like, you know, flying, flying with Jill through the air in Brazil. Yeah. You know, no, no, that didn't really happen. You're just sitting there getting tortured by the guy from Monty Python. It's all good. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, I mean, it was the end of innocence. But when you go back to the beginning of Dumbo, when Dumbo's mother is waiting, I mean, Dumbo's mother is waiting for the stork to deliver her baby and everyone else in the circus has already had a baby oh, and Dumbo's mother <laughs> and the stork like was late or was a, was a, uh, a stumble bum. And <laughs> what they chose to pull punches about is so bananas. Like we don't want to talk about coitus, but the fact that she might be barren and she's incredibly lonely is front and center. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and all the other elephants, all of whom I might add have mid Atlantic accents 
are, you know, they'll, they'll speak like this? Yes, they do. <laughs> well, oh, she's she'll be a terrible mother. Bob's your uncle. And um, they're all like already at the start of the movie, you can tell that Dumbo's mother is A, an outcast, B, um, maybe a little slow, and none of the other like um, none of the other sort of clicky elephants like her at all. They're mocking her before the before the baby even arrives. Oh God! And so it's a there's no there's no happy ending to that movie. Like even if Dumbo is rich, I mean part of it is the American ending, right? Where Dumbo gets rich and that is the triumph. That that now they have their own rail car, but they're still in the freaking circus. They're yeah. not back in the they're not back in the savannah. Dumbo and his mother didn't free themselves. Uh-uh. They're still they're still in chains. I you know I don't know. I I feel like I'm gonna uh, my little girl and I are gonna sit and we're gonna digest Dumbo for a while. But but I but seeing her emotional reaction to. You know that thing that you're describing, where she sits up straight all of a sudden, mm-hmm. and and is trying to avert her eyes, and you go, I, I'm, "I'm not just going to keep broadcasting uh, happy fluff to her, right?" But but uh, but if she shares my emotional nature, like there are so many more landmines in the world than for a normal person. You know, like well, and if, I, I just want to say, like, I, I, I'm glad that a kid can still have feelings. I mean, in a way, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be even weirder if they were sitting there and like laughing at Dumbo or had I know, no feeling? Be, be like terrible. that, that means that she's not dead inside, you know. <laughs> yeah. And that makes me happy. But I totally, I totally get what you're saying. Where it's, it's, it, that's a, that, yeah, that is a minefield. Yeah, and 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 you know, and there's a part. There's a part of my life that I absolutely would not trade. You know, the 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 degree to which I see the world through emotions. Even though I think over the years I have been accused by a lot of people of being cold or of being, you know, emotionally distant from them in particular. Emotionally distant from other people. And yet, like I I walk through a world that is <clears throat> you know, not just a rainbow of emotions, but also like into the infrared and x-ray uh, uh, of emotion, right? Uh, like I'm seeing, mm-hmm. I'm seeing emotions in things that do not have emotions and I'm having an emotional response to things that do not require one. And you have an emotional response that's maybe, I'll say inappropriate, but is out of, out of line with what a typical person would have about something. And 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 what that has always what I've always imagined is that it is uh, that it's a kind of dimensional perception or something. I'm seeing another overlay, mm-hmm. or not seeing. It's not a seeing thing. I am experiencing another overlay. Almost like somebody somebody who could imagine somebody who like sees themselves as a medium or a psychic, <laughs> like having no one I know. You know, yeah, but yeah, like yeah. honestly, somebody who feels like you know what I knew this was going to happen. I I had a strong vision of exactly what happened before it happened. Yeah, right. Uh, somebody like, asked like, me, can see something that other people don't see. I was at a party this weekend and somebody uh, – we were telling ghost stories and somebody was like, do you believe in ghosts, John? And I was like, well, I do not believe in ghosts. However, I have been terrorized by ghosts. And so in being terrorized by them, I absolutely believe in them, but I do not believe in them. God, that's so great. And you know, and they were like, well, what do you, what do you, what do you mean? And I was like, well, for instance, I do not believe in God. 
And yet I do not know whether or not I believe in God. And so I cannot say that I do not believe in God. But I don't believe in God, but I do very much believe in God. I mean, how, how much clearer could I be? And that is, um, it's perfectly consistent uh, from within. But, uh, but like not only impossible to explain, but also like, why would I bother? <laughs> what, what, right. what, what am I trying to communicate? Like sometimes I will come downstairs uh, ashen-faced because uh, all my pillows turn to owls. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that I believe that my that my or anyone else's pillows have turned to owls. If you believed I, it, it would be more plausible. If, that's the thing. <laughs> right. That's what people aren't getting. It's like it's like that's the thing about reality is it doesn't need you to believe in it. Like if something if if you know or feel that something is happening, knowing that it's not real makes it worse, not better. Mm-hmm. Or make the, the, let me put it differently: knowing that it doesn't line up with your quote unquote beliefs. Right. <laughs> Right. That makes yeah. it so much that makes it so much weirder. And yeah. that's why that's where things like I mean like I don't believe I don't believe in I've stopped believing a long time ago in like all kinds of superstitions, but like when something incredibly uh coincidental happens, it really freaks me out now. Because I'm like how did that happen? What like did I have some role in making that happen with my mind? Yeah. Like that, that's so and of course I don't believe in it, but how do I what would I what do I say? I guess I could sit there and like have some skeptic, you know, James Randi person explain to me like how actually likely that was to happen, but it doesn't stop giving me the creeps. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, we still have those experiences. I mean, everybody does all the time. Where where um, <clears throat> you, you wake up in the morning and and the first thing you the first thing that happens when you open your eyes is that you see the biography of Winston Churchill on the bookshelf, and then you open your computer. And the top of your Twitter feed is somebody saying something about Winston Churchill. And then you hear that. Then you, you overhear someone standing at a bus stop uh, mention Winston Churchill. And you're like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. What is this? What am I meant to understand? Or like and, you, say, you say a phrase at the exact moment someone on the radio is saying it. <laughs> and, 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 and you go, what, what, what am, what am, what's the takeaway here? And... And the takeaway is this better be meaningful. The takeaway is nothing <laughs> exactly. But, but at the same time, it's impossible not to. It's it's I cannot live in in that world of like proud skeptics and proud atheists and proud, uh, you know, that 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 whole world where you are you are willingly <laughs> people, people who proudly announce here's the thing i've decided i don't have to think about anymore <laughs> yeah right you are willingly putting on blinders exactly and saying i refuse to see these things it's not that i refuse to see them as supernatural i just refuse to see them because to say that there's a there's a rational explanation for them is also to say that i refuse to see them and that um, works that works so well until you're about 19 or 20 but if you're in your 60s and doing that, that that's not sexy <laughs> not sexy that's exactly right. So I mean, th- those happen all the time. I was, uh, but but I but again, I cannot say that the world of emotion that I perceive, or the world of emotion that I apply, or the world of emotion that uh, that is realer to me than the world, than the world of bricks and mortar. I cannot say that I take anything from that. That that exists outside of myself, or even that it exists within me. Or that it means anything, or that, but you know, like my good friend Mike Squires used to say to me, he would grab me by the shoulders and he'd say, John, emotions are real. And I would, and I would go, you know, 
take your hands off me, <laughs> boor. And he would say, no, I want you to hear me. Listen, emotions are real. And I would go, God damn it, you're, stop it. Stop fucking with me. And he would say, I'm not fucking with you. I'm trying to get you to understand that they are real. They are real. And over time, I understood what he was trying to say, you know, that they are, that they are real. And, uh, and that is a, you know, that's a thing, that's a thing that, uh, in the, in, in trying to conduct a day in trying to conduct an adult day and, 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 and fielding all the things that come throughout an adult day and recognizing that emotions are real, that they are not just a, that they are not a byproduct. They are not. They are not steam. Yeah, it's not because, like, I think I get what you're saying vis-a-vis Mike. It's like it, it isn't that emotions are some kind of unexpected psychic dander. That they're actually there is actually something there that is, as you say, real. It's it's more than just some kind of little little passing synaptic goof. But there's right. something there's something enduring and and just as real as quote unquote reality. Yeah, they're not a reaction that you can either choose to have or not. You know, that whole business of like, well, sorry, if you're upset about it, that says more about you than it does about An emotion about is different than an opinion. An emotion is very different than an opinion. And, and an emotion is, I mean, you know, uh, it, in, in running this, uh, this campaign for office, uh, the, the truest thing about it is that it has delivered me into an emotional place that I have not been in in decades and an emotional place that's very discomforting and to and in in the times when I try to suppress that emotion and say listen all you have to do is get these papers out give these speeches get the you know fulfill the duties of the of the candidate and the emotional response to this is like nobody's interested, right? Nobody is interested in your emotional response to transit. They want the, the, they want the policy response exclusively. Let alone is anyone interested in your emotional response to the experience of running a campaign. But in fact, that is the whole, the whole question for me as a candidate and as an office holder, the, the question is, is not at all can i handle the policy and that is the that's the question that is how it's framed when i confront the world like can he handle the policy is he going to be able to figure out this policy world mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's a pretty complicated world this world of policy is he going to be able to figure it out and it's like fuck you it is not a complicated i mean it is it is complicated in the sense that there is so much and so much to know but that is not the complicated part. The complicated mm-hmm. part is how do you invest policy with meaning? How do you recruit people to understand that policy affects real action in the world? How do you, get, how do you enlist them even if they, if they feel like it's against their best interest, their personal best interest? You know, those are all emotional uh, duties. The policy itself is you know, it's just a set of encyclopedias. And I have read, (laughs) I have read multiple sets of encyclopedias. I can read another. Uh, But for me personally, like 
the question is, do you, can you emotionally survive this? Is this emotionally fulfilling? And, you know, and the fact that it is trouble, uh, the, the, the fact that it is, uh, that it feels dangerous and that emotionally you are upset all the time now is not necessarily evidence that you're not suited for this or that this isn't, that this isn't good and great. It's just that I've, you know, just as I have entered a, a realm where there's a lot of reading to do, there's also a lot of emotional study to do. Hmm. And D- is it, does that surprise you? I mean, I'm not surprised, but is there more of that than you expected? Well, yeah, because that's the whole realm that no one ever talks about. There's no bo- there are 50 books like how to run a successful campaign. There are no books titled how to emotionally survive a campaign. And yet it is just as real if not realer. And for me, a lot of the decisions I've made over the last 15 years, I have probably made at an intellectual level in order to protect my emotional well-being. And so I I live in a world where where I am defending my my emotional citadel by making decisions so that the emotional citadel is never breached. And I don't think that's very that, that's not necessarily healthy. I sit in that citadel and I am um you know and I feel safe, but am I not I mean, not. It may not be optimal or or like the most healthy thing, but it's certainly understandable. It's understandable, but now I am I have chosen a world in which I am not in my like my citadel is relevant. I'm not there anymore. I had to leave it to come down here, and now the 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 outward challenge is: Can you fill out all these forms? Here, you <laughs> have applied for a job that requires that you fill out. 400,000 forms. Can you do it? Go. And then there are a bunch of people watching you and going, is he going to fill out? Can he, can he figure out the, how to fill out these forms? It's pretty hard. And it's just, it's not hard. It's just, it's just work. But the, the question of, are you, Hmm. you know, can you emotionally uh, survive? Not just the filling out of the forms, but the people watching and commenting and the, you know, and the waking up at 5 a.m. Like those are the, that's the real stuff of this. And, um, but I have no, I have no safe harbor even to talk about it or, or um, there's no one to compare notes with except a very few other people. And, and honestly, like every day, that is the, the, the question is never like, can I get in the car and make it to this meeting with the firefighters union by one thirty? I mean, obviously I can, but, and can I sit in the room and answer the firefighters questions to their satisfaction? Yes, of course. But when I walk out of there, do I want to curl into a ball? Yes, I do. Why? Why do I want to curl into a ball? What happened what about this makes me want to curl into a ball? And, and is that a thing that will, that I, I mean, that's definitely a thing I need to address in, in advance of becoming a public servant, right? And hmm. when, you are, when you are a rock musician and you get 
done playing a two-hour show and you go back into your dressing room and curl into a ball, everybody recognizes you have just given a tremendous amount of energy and emotion to a room full of people and it was, you know, and that emotion and energy is what people go to see rock concerts for. They even give you a special room where you can go be by yourself. That's right. And the (laughs) audience walks out into the night and they feel charged up in part because they have because you have projected your emotion onto them. They have vampired you a little bit. <laughs> right, right, sure. And, and then you are, you know, kind of, a, kind of a husk, and you have to replenish. And no one, you know, I mean, there, there are definitely people that come up to me right after a show and are like, what's the matter with you? <laughs> like, you know, this is my dressing room. Go out of here. But the same is true in so many walks of life, and we don't recognize that you're drawing down and if your reservoir doesn't have a chance to fill back up, you're, right. you're, you know, you're just drawing. Every, I, I put in, I put emotion back into my reservoir and it immediately is used. And but that, uh, but that reads as to, to, to you and to others that reads as, Oh, I'm feeling tired. I think that tired is the first thing. I don't think other people register at all because I managed to, you know, you 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 raise your eyebrows up. You put on a you put on a capable smile, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you say, "I am here, and I am ready to do the thing." Mm-hmm. And and people, you know, people say like, maybe he looks tired, or or um. But you know, thus far in the campaign, I have, you know, there's never come a time where I was driving to a, a driving to an event, and I just pulled over and said, "I can't do it." You know, there's never been one. And I'm sure in every politician's life, there is a moment where they're about to walk into a gymnasium and they just say, I cannot. And you just hope that you don't, you don't say, I cannot after you're already standing on the stage. (laughs) Right. But, but, um, but I think my, like in my own emotional world, I do first feel it as being exhausted. Um, and and then the sort of like attendant feeling of anxious, but anxious like if you are exhausted and and your energy is going into anxiety, mm-hmm. you know that can that's a horrible feeling. It's terrible. And I fight that. I fight that constantly, and I hate it. And it's funny. I've I've mentioned this to several friends, and I've been really astonished at the number of people that I perceive to be calm and collected. Who have said to me, like a, a good friend of mine, um, who seems like just the coolest dude. He's so cool. He's just a cool cat. He's a, he he is a booking agent here in town. He and I have kind of been estranged for a couple of years, but like you know, he's like I consider him like a close friend still. And I was talking to him about the campaign, and I was like, you know, I just I don't understand it. I just am anxious all the time about this, and it's not it doesn't uh, preclude me from doing good. I just don't know how to bear this feeling. And he said, you know, you just described how I feel every single day, <sighs> how I've felt every day for as long as I can remember. And I didn't know how to, I didn't know where to put that information. I was like, what you, I, I just assume that like, it's just all water off a duck's back with you. He's like, no, I mean, constant feeling that I am just one, one mistake away from, from total annihilation. I think it's so much more common than I realized. And 
I think it's more common than most people will are aware of. Not that that necessarily makes it better. I think it makes it less worse to know that you're not the only one. I mean, I feel like I spend most of my day vibrating very quickly and just slightly out of alignment with the rest of the vibrations of the rest of the universe <laughs> where it feels like a rattle. I feel like, I feel like I'm just rattling in the universe a lot of the time. Yeah. 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 Well, and I never used to feel like that. I mean, for me to, to for me to be at I risk felt like of, that, I wasn't aware of it for sure. If you, if you used to feel that way. No, I mean like, I, I mean, I look back and I think about, I think I used to have much more of like garden variety. Like I'm scared this thing will happen. And I think about it a lot versus like that gets located more physically in my body now than it used to. Yeah. You know, the, people talk about the differences between like things like anxiety, fear, worry. I'm very interesting topics to me, kind of obsessively interesting topics to me. But the way you locate that physically in your body can be very different from one thing to the next. The feeling of like standing in the, on the glass floor of the Eiffel Tower and looking down and feeling like your pants are falling off, like that kind of like your gut sinking feeling, that's a kind of a fearful huh, kind of thing mm-hmm. versus the like, oh my God, <laughs> vibrating feeling of like what is happening all the time. Yeah. Yeah. What I mean, what I, I didn't what, used to feel it. <laughs> what I now feel is I wake up in the morning and already I am, I am struggling to catch my breath and I'm just all day long. I'm just like, just struggling to catch my breath. Like I have a little, like I have an, I'm having a mild asthma attack. Yeah. And I never used to have that feeling at all. Or I mean, just, just, it basically it it was the feeling that I had an hour before I went on stage, you know, like more I've like, descri- a, like a butterflies in your stomach kind of thing. Yeah, I've described this before, right? That uh, that uh, it, when somebody says, "Hey, we want you to play a show," I always say, "Great," and then immediately start to pretend that I didn't say that. And a month or two go by, and they send me emails like that show's coming up, and I'm like, ah, and just like delete. But as the show starts to loom. I start to wish that I had not agreed to do it. Even if I know it's going to be a great show, even if it's like the beginning of a tour, I start to think like, why did I say that I would do this? And as the show gets closer, I start to feel like I really hope that there's a storm and I hope there's a storm and the show is canceled. Uh, I totally know that feeling. Yeah. And then the night of the show, I'm like, what if the wheel came off of my car and I had a mild accident where no one was hurt, but enough of an accident that I had a plausible reason for not. A, a lot of people think that's what Dylan's motorcycle accident was. He just like laid it down and said, sorry. Oh yeah. I mean, now we're back to AJ Weberman and the, and the Dylanologist. Yeah. But a lot of people think that like he was, he really had just kind of reached the end of it and that he, you know, kind of took a dive and was not hurt nearly as bad, but like just needed that time to like, just not have to deal. Yeah, I have no, I, I have no doubt about it, and I, I've I've told you about right the one time that that did happen when I I'd put together a show with Dave Bazan and Kathleen Edwards and my friend Laura Meyer Ratkin, and we had booked the Triple Door in Seattle, and we had all learned each other's songs, and we were going to get up on stage and we were going to play four of Kathleen's songs. Oh, I saw that video. Is that where Scott Simpson made the video you guys rehearsing? Yeah. Scott, oh my God, that was exquisite. So that was so so we had this. We had this show that we had worked out and it was all just this imagination of like, what if Dave and Kathleen and I and Laura all just were a band and we did four or five songs of each other's tunes and, and, and it was a crazy idea. But once, once we got in the room, there was real energy and we, and the song sounded incredible that way. And we went, we were, we were it was a summer 
weekend and we were sitting in my house with the windows open and the doors open, just playing our music. And it was one of those sort of pure musician experiences where you're just like, I just, I don't want this to end. I mean, this is hard. It's hard to learn this music, but like, it's the best kind of hard. And then we went down to the triple door. There was a line of people out the door to see the show. We rehearsed on stage. We ran through four or five songs. It was like, and they sounded incredible. And this was exactly the room for it. And we were just looking at each other like, it's going to be a magical night. This is already a magic night. And then it started to rain in the theater. And we're standing on stage and we're playing. What? We're playing our, a song still. We're in the middle of the song. And throughout the theater, it's just rain. And not a light rain, but like storm rain. And we're, we're, we continue the song. And we're all looking out at the seats as they get drenched. And it's so surreal that like we, we don't, we don't stop playing. And all of a sudden, like the staff of the restaurant is screaming and running around and, and we're still playing and thinking like, this is weird. And we get to the end of the tune and we stare out at the, at the theater, which is now a scene of complete devastation. And I'm standing on stage still thinking like, well, we better get this cleaned up. I mean, there's like four inches of water on everything. And it dawns on us suddenly that like, it's over. What, what had happened was the restaurant upstairs, somehow the drain had plugged and all of the drainage water from a night of from a from a big dinner service all of the gray water uh, uh, from the dishwasher and the kitchen had pooled in the floor uh, you know underneath their floor but above our ceiling until it was oh you know God. eight inches of dirty water and then it just all at once just fell just soaked through the soaked through the material of the ceiling and then just <laughs> storm. It was surreal. And it came down not as falling ceiling, but as rain, dirty rain. And, and we were, we were playing the last song before doors were opening, right? If that had, if it had taken a half an hour longer, that dirty rain would have fallen on a, on a full house. And the, the, you know, the line of the crowd down the street. And what had happened was I had probably two hours before would have been so glad if uh, to, to, to imagine that happening, right? Because of that pre-show anxiety. But I had crossed the threshold and was into the show. Like doors are, doors are in five. And all of us on stage had crossed that threshold. We were, we were over the hump. And we're in show mode. And it was so incredible, the experience of that show being canceled right in front of us. And we had all put our energy on the table. And I'd never had that experience before where the energy was out. It was on the table and it was ready to go. And then there was nowhere to put it. 
and we and none of us had 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 that experience before and we were we were sitting backstage in a complete daze like our our whole show energy was out of us but had not gone anywhere and was not being reciprocated or you know there was nowhere for it to 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 live and it it was seriously like like we had survived like we'd all been struck by lightning um and there was we were none of us could talk it was it was very confusing our feelings were outside of our body already and so the next day somebody who had been at who had one of the people who had had meant to come to the show contacted us and said hey i'm one of the directors of the woodland park zoo would you guys like to come feed the giraffes and we were like yes we would and so all of us together went to the zoo and spent a couple of hours inside the giraffe enclosure just hand feeding giraffes and it was a it was a brilliant uh insight that this person at the zoo somehow recognized either saw or just um or or we just got lucky or god was watching out or something but somehow going and having this singular experience hand feeding giraffes for a couple of hours was it it allowed us to collect all that emotion back and you know and feel like it had been used or it's very hard to explain, but mm-hmm. but I mean, for a month afterward, I think we all just sort of walked around in a in a very strange state, not an unpleasant one, but like a singular one where you're where you're ready, you're you're on you're actually on stage, ready to go, and and the show is canceled. Um, emotions are real. Emotions are real. Mm-hmm. Holy shit! That must have been so strange. Yeah, I still, you know, you can hear just in describing it that I go back into a place of of like profound confusion about what, you know, I'm I'm like I'm feeling it again. Mm-hmm. That, that feeling of just like what do you, what does one do when what does one do when there is no climax? And it's like you had the energy, and maybe I'm repeating what you said, but it's almost like there were just no, there's no receptors, there's no receptacles. Like right. The energy just it didn't exactly dissipate, but like where did it go? Because it's, yeah. it's kind of still it didn't really, you know, it's you just it's kind of ruined emotion. You load up the torpedo tubes, <laughs> and then you know nothing. You surface and go back home, and it's just like whoa whoa it's it, there's a lot of danger it feels very dangerous to be like sailing into port with with full torpedo tubes <laughs> right <laughs> yes i'm sorry yeah. this is this is so uh, such a, a wonderful topic and uh, it's, i'm hearing his dick jokes in my head <laughs> but but so as far as now today yeah um are you can you can you and do you choose to locate what this with any specificity what those emotions are when you walk out from talking to the firefighters and you feel like oh boy something's going on like is it are you aware of like how that evidences in your feelings thoughts and and maybe even physicality or but can you locate what it is that you that's making you feel that way what that feeling is well and this is the thing that this ultimately is is the actual learning experience of this um of this undertaking 
the thing I have to learn is not um, what this you know what the state policy is on rent control, right? Um, because that is just interesting and easy to learn and not emotional. Uh, that is just policy. But the thing I have to learn is what is going on and what is going on inside me and how can I turn that energy to be more useful to people and less, you know, like my anxiousness and my, uh, my anxiousness is a sign that I really think that this is important. Absolutely. And that if you, you know, think about like stage fright or whatever you want to call it, right? Or those butterflies. Like, and I think we've talked about this, but like if you didn't feel anything before you went on stage for two years, like that should tell you something. You're either not challenging yourself or you stop caring. Yeah, right. But how do I turn that energy so that I am a more effective public servant? Mm -hmm. So that I am somebody who is more useful to people as an agent of, of getting things happening and, and, and making good policy. Right. Mm -hmm. And not, it, 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 it isn't about my comfort in and of itself. It is about like my discomfort as another, um, as another lever. And, and so I'm, I'm very aware of it and 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 I realize like when I, when I am asked to write policy about things that I feel like are out of my um out of my world of interest I'm I uh, I don't really pardon me I don't really have a uh, I don't have an emotional block about like reading about stuff I don't understand, asking people who know better about stuff uh, who can explain what I don't understand to me. Like that stuff right. is just – that's just exciting. And that's, part that's, of the, that's as you say. I think you phrase it like that's the work. That's the work. That part, that part is, is not that ambiguous. It's, right. There's a thing over here that has to be dealt with and then when you're done dealing with it, there's other things you deal with. I think it's much more to do with the fact that – I am a person who, it, you know, I am a, I am a personality characterized by self-doubt and a certain amount of it is healthy self-doubt and a certain amount of it is unhealthy self-doubt and I, I'm, I'm always trying to move the needle back to healthy self-doubt. Right. Um, but I am in a world where, where you, the expectation is that you express no self-doubt and um, and the other candidates do not show very much self-doubt. I happen to know that the other people in my race ha do have considerable self-doubt. They are human beings, and I and I like them. And there are there, you know, all three of the guys I'm running against do have like emotional lives. But when I walk into the firefighters' union this afternoon, and they start talking to me about their pensions. And I start answering questions about, you know, my feelings about the firefighters' pensions and how important those are. There, there is no room in that conversation for me, for my self-doubt, because they don't have time for it. You know, mm -hmm. they just want to hear whether or not I support their position. And so, being in in those in those rooms, because as a 
as a musician and as an artist and as somebody who was living in the world that I had made for myself, I brought that self-doubt with me everywhere. And I used it as a, a there, if I were, if I was in a conversation with somebody and they had no room for my self-doubt, I left that conversation and said, you are a monster. I'm not, you know, I'm not here to, um, I'm not here to perform for you. Well, self-doubt, to- the self-doubt, I mean, I think it's slightly different than the Welsh troll. But I think so the self-doubt can be a, a companion in some ways. It keeps you, it keeps you kind of honest. It keeps yeah. you, it keeps you um, practical in some cases. And maybe something that doesn't help you every single time. But I mean, that becomes like a companion in some ways, that, an uneasy companion. But uh, I, I don't think that's a horrible thing. And but but it's more, it's more, it's more effect, uh, it's more normal when you're walking around being a musician. Mm-hmm. Well, right. and the thing is, I, you I can't cannot, introduce that little friend to people at the firefighters union. Yeah, I, and the thing is, I can't live without it. That it, that is a that is one a part of my character, and it will it, I think make me a better public servant. But I'm being asked to perform in a circus where that is not one of the that's not what people paid uh, the ticket price for. Right, you don't you don't sit in front of the uh, in front of uh, an executive board and say, you know, that question has plagued me, and not because I worry about your pensions, but more because pensions are emblematic of a of a deeper question of the the role that the state plays in providing for you know, and it's just they're already like, ding, right? They're looking for their bell. They're like that's not what we're we don't you know we this we, we didn't sign up for a class we signed up for a thirty minute interview with you where you tell us either what we want to hear or you couch or or give us an idea what we have to fight or, yeah that's right and and I've I've described this to you before right mm-hmm. that uh, that I've heard from several people that, like people come up to me and say I don't like your opponent um, but I know where he stands. And the fact that I know where he stands allows me to make plans. And I have a $40 million hole in the ground downtown that I'm two days away from pouring concrete into. And the fact that your opponent is either for or against it is less important to me than that I know exactly what he's going to do. And so although I don't like him and I might like you, Mm -hmm. the fact that I don't know what you're going to do is scarier to me than that I do know that he is against me. That is incredibly fascinating. And I just go, because from, you know, from where I stand, like the first time somebody said that to me, I was like, they, they said, you know, it's really kind of scary to us that we don't know what you're going to do. And I was like, I know, right? Isn't that great? <laughs> you're the agent of chaos. <laughs> and they're like, it is not at all great. And I'm like, but, but I mean, you have a sense that I'm going to support you know, like uh, it was an environmental group talking to me, and I was like, "You have a sense that I am like one thousand percent an environmentalist," and they were like, "Well, we do have a sense of it, and we also, you know, but they're not are, sure who you're going to deliver the bill to and how." Yeah, they're like, "We're very excited about it, but your opponent has been a reliable and like gray-colored vote on behalf of the basic environmental package." He's he doesn't he's not inspiring, but he is reliable. And I'm like, but I mean, don't you want inspiring? And they're like, well, what we want is reliably inspiring. 
And I was, and, and, you know, and facing that and being yeah. like, well, reliably inspiring, that's like, you're talking about lawful good. But the way like, you describe it, the hole in the ground situation, you've described this before, but I, I really get, get it now. I get it. It's, it's in a way, you know what it reminds me of? This is kind of obscure, but it's almost like finding out what judge you've been assigned. Like when you're, when you're on one side of the, of the, of the case or another, like when you find out what judge has been assigned to your case, and there may be some judges that are way more favorable to your particular point of view than others. But like once you find out what that judge is, you have to craft a certain kind of offense or defense, depending on who that person is. Right. right? So even if it's the hanging judge and you're the defense, at least now you, you, it's a knowable thing. Yeah. It's, like it seems like I may not be preferable, but I don't know if this is even the right analogy. But like it's you know you wouldn't want some some new cat coming in there who's like a real free thinker. You'd be like, well, I know I need to know like how much is this gonna, case going to cost to defend? Like who do I have to bring in as expert witnesses? Well, let me look at your track record and see how you tend to adjudicate these things given certain conditions. Right. Right. That's much more desirable than going like, hey, here's somebody who really believes in justice. And you're like, okay. Great, thanks. Yeah, like what? justice. Great. Well, and that's and the thing about a city council, from the perspective of all these groups, is what they're looking for is five out of nine votes. They're not, you know, they do. Uh, the The vast majority of these groups do not look at individual uh, council people in as much as they look at where that individual council person is going to fall. In a, in a split decision. And so everybody wants five reliable votes. The environmentalists want five reliable votes. The transit nerds want five reliable votes. The cops want five reliable votes. Mm-hmm. And so an election like this is, they, it's, for them, it's much more of a scorecard. And they say, okay, uh, we've got this person and this person they are, you know, they're the incumbent, they're doing well in the race, and we know that they're a vote for us. And now there's these other seats where it's unclear who's going to win, and we need to know, like, where the, where, whether the candidates are a vote for us or not. And in my case, I'm running against the incumbent, and everybody knows exactly where he fits into their scorecard. Right. And, and unfortunately for me, of everyone in the race in the you know of all 65 people or whatever who are running for Seattle City Council right now I am the one that is the most unknowable for everyone for the cops and that, the are you accounting for how high your profile is compared to the the long tail candidates or you're saying just generally straight up like you're you're the most like unknowable I'm the most unknowable, not only because I don't, you know, I don't come from a siloed background. I'm not, you know, if you are... People, could, people couldn't read your resume and, and guess exactly what you'll do. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm trying to populate my campaign with writing that, um, that lays it out. But even that, you know, I don't have a voting record, right? It's very easy in a campaign to say, when elected, I will put a baby in every pot. But unless you have, unless you have voted for a baby in every pot five times, or conversely, voted uh, to not put babies in pots, uh, it's all You're not just be let like, around by a big pot. You know, yeah, I'm not, that's right. I'm not. You know, I'm I'm not in I'm not in service to big baby either. <laughs>
Oh my god! Keep going. <laughs> oh my god! We could stop there. That's so good. But I, I want to hear more. Yeah. So uh... <laughs> I'm imagining an actual large baby. Where are you going to go on this vote, buddy? Which way are you going to go? Babies in pots or not? So uh, yeah. So emotionally, right? I I uh, I um because there are a lot of things at stake here. You want to be. Everybody who's running for office wants to be liked by everybody, except for the people who are running for office specifically because they hate a certain kind of civic leader. The guy who wears a boot on his head. Yeah, like, right. Like, like, unless you're like, like the, the, the deliberate like outsider candidate. Or, or no, or a lot of the insiders are insiders but are like, I am here to fight big developers. It's like, well, what does that mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do, who are they? And But, you know, but that's not... But that's not politics to say, what does that mean? What's politics is to say, I'm here to fight big developers. And then everybody in the room goes, yay, big developers are bad. For the whole, here's the thing, though. For the hole-in-the-ground person, like getting somebody in there who's incredibly incompetent that holds that point of view might actually be kind of good for them. Absolutely. Am I you wrong? Can, I mean, am I being extreme? Not at all. You plan around that stuff. It's, you know, it's the Supreme Court stuff. It's not, you don't have to get a unanimous verdict. You are trying to win. And if you know that four people on the council are against you and you know that four are for you, then you can just focus your attention on the one, which is, which is, which feels very efficient to a lot of political operatives. You know, it's like, well, that's that's a super interesting way to look at it. Like the swing vote. Yeah. We don't have to, we don't have to expend any energy on those four people that we know are against us. And the fact that they are, you know, that one of them is really smart and one of them is really dumb. You know, one of them is uh, Scalia and one of them is Thomas. Like, well, then wait a minute. So, but if somebody, let's say the, the evil John Roderick, okay. <laughs> somebody with a mustache comes in, yeah, who, uh, the twirly mustache. No, but like in that case, doesn't that kind of benefit the we don't know what they'll do person because now they can leverage that if they were that sort of person? Well, yeah, except if they get the sense that that person is a person of principle. You know, if I were running for office and all of these groups smelled on me that I was someone who was corrupt, someone who was capable of being coerced or bought or, Mm -hmm. you know, and this is why people say like, we love a situation where it's a dumb candidate and a smart staff (laughs) because you can go talk to the staff and say, what do you guys? Uh, what do you guys want out of this? Like, if we give you, if you give us this and we give you that, how does that feel? And the staff goes, "Oh, that benefits my career, and I'm not the one out front who's going to get caught uh, with his hand in a bag." So you know, the staff makes the deal, and then they say to the their candidate, "Like, here's what we should do on this." And the candidate goes, "Oh, really? Great! I get it. He's got a big hair, and he goes out and and people vote for his hair." And, uh, and that's how politics goes. But so these groups, you know, they, if I were malleable and they didn't know what I was going to do, sure. They'd be like, great, here's a, and there are people absolutely at every level of politics that walk into every room and say, what can I do for you? Mm -hmm. The problem is that they smell on me that I am not, that I, that they don't know what I'm going to do. And also they, they're not confident that they can reach me through the normal back doors. I'm, I, uh, I, I've had a few people in my life 
where I didn't realize until too late how important it was to them that I owed them a favor. Oh, yes. You ever meet people like this and they're perpetually, they seem so nice and so dad-like in some ways. But there are these people who want to make sure you owe them at least a couple favors all the time. Yeah. And sometimes they'll insert them. Like kind of like, oh, here, here's a thing I did for you. And then it's like I'm, I'm imagining somebody like playing pool and like extending the cue and like moving the little clicker down the string. Mm-hmm. I, you must run into that. There must be people who are just always like, I, I just I will always just keep doing these like little things for people, and that will accumulate. And eventually, on the day of my daughter's wedding, <laughs> did they may come? Mm-hmm. I will I will come to you and ask a favor of you. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Is that how it works? Put my boy back together. Look <laughs> what they did to my boy. Um. Uh. It's absolutely how it works, and at every stage of the campaign, there have there have been moments, and I've I've I think described this before, but like the path to corruption is not a big bag of money; it is a tiny little incremental failures to make um, failures to stand on your own principle, hmm. and people come up to me every single day and there, there's nothing dishonest about it. It is not, it is not a, it's not a process uh, of organized deceit. It is not a conspiracy. It is just people saying, hi, I see you're running. I like what I see. I would like you, I'd like to give you an opportunity to be my friend. And in exchange for that, I will do what I can to help you. And it feels very natural. It feels very human and humane. And you, and when you're on a campaign, you're struggling. You want friends. You want people to say, we are here to support you. And we're not asking anything except a very small huh. thing, which is just that you be our friend and remember this moment. And you go, wow, that seems like such a so it's so easy. They're going to support me, and all I have to do is remember that they're my friend. Mm-hmm. I will take that deal. Thank you so much. And you're you're just trying to put together enough friends to get into office, but you realize that every one of those people is remembering that favor, and that's their job to do. And if you if you don't have a a core, if your values aren't your own then in the course of a campaign, it only takes one campaign to get to the end and realize like, oh, I promised everybody. I promised everything to everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and, and now I'm in office and I'm excited about that. And so you know, each person who walks in here, um, I'm going to try and accommodate. And not because I'm looking for the best solution that helps everybody, but... Just because I've already, you know, because I've already given a little piece of myself to everybody, and it's uh, it's astonishing how easy it is to be to be corrupted, and let alone when you get in there and somebody comes and says, "Remember when I remember when we endorsed you and I got seventy thousand members of my organization to come out and fight for you, like." you would not be here without me. Mm-hmm. And that's hardball politics. And, you know, it's what I love about the Sierra Club. Like, they sat down with me and, and we talked and they were like, you know, why would we endorse you? Like, we've endorsed your opponent in the last three elections. It would be 
It would and be and a they, real, don't, they don't like to change. They don't no, like to change it, horses. It would be a real violation of our policy. And I was like, wouldn't you like to have somebody on, out there that really was like really on your team? And they were like, you know what? Yes, we would. And they endorsed me and they have not – like they didn't ask me for anything then and they really have not made a big deal of it since. They were just like, you know what? He's our guy. And now I run into them and they're just like – they seem happy to see me. And there's no sense of because, – because I already was ahead of them on like the Sierra Club is never going to come to me and say, we really need you to do this thing that you find distasteful, right? right? Like I'm already – I was just like, listen – you guys draft off of me on this because I'm, you know, like I got this part of it. But, but the, the, you know, there's a, there are so many issues where any reasonable person would kind of fall somewhere in the middle, you know? And it really is difficult to know where you, to know where you land. And that is normal and that should be part of good government. There should, that should be part of the discussion. Like there's, there's nine of us up here and seven of us think that this is kind of – this is sort of a gimme or there are seven of, seven of us up here that don't even understand the question mm-hmm. or uh, there, are, you know, there are six of us who feel like group A has a good point but they're kind of overplaying their hand a little bit and group B has a weaker point but they're, they're being kind of noble. You know, like that stuff, that's just like – that's people business but – there's no real there's no real place for that in a campaign in a campaign you are you're for or against stuff right and if you start to have nuance it's just like then they ring the bell it's like your 30 seconds are up thank you for your time hmm